Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37 this morning. So will you uh, read along with me um, in God's word? It says, Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, first, I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the little dogs. She replied, that is true, Lord, but even the dogs on the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. Jesus left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Ten Towns. A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him, and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. Then he put his fingers into the man's ears. Then, spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephaphatha, which means be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. And Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and give speech to those who cannot speak. This is God's word. We've been saying for some time now that Mark's gospel is written for disciples and that it's a roadmap for discipleship to Jesus. So in a time where there is a lot of confusion and man, there is a lot of confusion about what's going on in the world, about who we are, what we're to be doing, how we are to be responding, how we are to be living out the gospel. Mark's gospel is a roadmap for the people of God and how to follow the way of Jesus. We've also been saying that Mark is a book of mystery. Mark's gospel is so filled with mysterious references to Jesus and his identity, as we'll see again this morning. Mark, though rarely quoting the Old Testament, is a master of the biblical text. And he has told the story of how God is cryptically and mysteriously present in bringing his kingdom on earth through the suffering crucified and resurrected Messiah, Jesus. I love what Richard Hayes says. He says, for Mark, the character of God's presence in Jesus is a mystery that can be approached only by indirection through riddle-like allusions to the Old Testament. And Mark, through his portrayal of Jesus as he, we've been saying, drops these breadcrumbs or the proverbial shoe, He is provoking the most important question as he portrays Jesus doing what only Yahweh does and uh, taking the identity of Yahweh up, though cryptically and mysteriously, he is provoking the most important question that has ever been put to humanity. And that is the question, who is Jesus? Who do we say that he is? 
As we've noted, Mark speaks again, Jesus, excuse me, Mark's Jesus speaks cryptically and mysteriously on purpose because he wants us to press into his story of Jesus so we don't miss out on what God is doing. Remember, as Jesus said, we need to listen. We need to pay close attention. And so I pray that we will do that this morning as we hear God's word. So first, let's look at Jesus and the Gentile woman. And I want us to consider that this letter was written to a Gentile church. This gospel was written to the early church that was filled with Gentiles. And we mentioned this long ago when we started this book, that this was written to the early church. It was filled with Gentiles, and it was written not only to know the story of Jesus, but it was written in order to form the early church in the way of Jesus. And as I said, we know that there was a very large population of Gentiles in the church. Therefore, the stories about clean and unclean that maybe we find confusing. We don't really speak in those terms in Western society. Um, stories about outsiders, about Gentile territories, about Gentiles, about women, etc. These would have been hugely important and validating for the early church. Mark shows how Jesus was already sowing the seeds for the gospel to go to the Gentiles and that the Gentiles were not unclean second-class members in the church, but in fact joint heirs of the grace of God and salvation. As we move into this next section, it's good to note that Mark intends these next two stories— to be the physical outworking of what Jesus has just taught to the religious leaders, the crowds, and the disciples. Though the topic of following, excuse me, I lost my place again. Though the topic and following discussions of the last section centered around eating with unwashed hands and misconceptions about defilement and uncleanness, this would have had real life implications for the Jewish community. And it wasn't just about what they ate, but it was more specifically about who they ate and socialized with. The kosher laws, along with the tradition of the elders, made it so that Jews did not eat or fraternize with Gentiles. And of course, through the Mosaic law, we hear God's intention for Israel. It's that they would not be influenced by the nations around them. And we know that this happened again and again. But it wasn't intended that they would be completely exclusive. Remember, the Jews, the Jewish people were meant to be called to be the light to the nation. Their laws and their lifestyle were to be a shining light in the midst of the other nations and their idols. They were meant to see God's justice in Israel in contrast to their injustice. They were meant to see God's mercy in contrast to their cruelty, God's righteousness in contrast to their unrighteousness. And let me just say this, the same is true today. Jesus talks about the church being a light of the world, a city that is set on the hill, and we would say the same thing. The righteousness that happens within the body of Christ should be in contrast to the unrighteousness that we see in the culture. The justice that we see amidst the people of God should be in contrast to the injustice, the mercy in contrast to the mercilessness, forgiveness in contrast to the bitterness. And sadly, this is not what we often see. But all of this, of course, was meant to draw the nations around them to the one true God. 
But by the time of the first century, this separation from Gentiles had really reached its pinnacle. It had gone from separation to extreme prejudice and xenophobia. Listen to the teachings from the pseudo-epigraphal book, Jubilees. Separate from the Gentiles, it says, and do not eat with them, and do not do according to their works, and do not become their associates, for their works are unclean. Now this book that came sometime in the intertestamental period was protest literature, I guess, if you will, against the Hellenization of the Jews. And at this time, it was a struggle. They saw the Jews becoming more and more influenced by the Greek culture. And so there were many um, religious Jews who doubled down in their convictions to be separate from the Gentiles. But it went to extreme measures. They reinterpret the book of Genesis and add all sorts of mosaic law into it. There's one example here. Jubilee retells the story of Dinah, Jacob's daughter, recorded in Genesis 34, and then it adds its own commentary on it. Here's what it says. The children of Israel are to forbid without exception any and all intermarriage with Gentiles, including converted Gentiles. Any man who violates this statute shall be stoned to death, and any daughter or sister given to the Gentiles shall be burned with fire. Such violations result in the defilement of a household and contaminate the nation. Remember how we've been saying the religious leaders, what they want is Levitical type holiness for the whole of the nation of Israel because they believe this is what will bring them out of exile. This is what will redeem them. This is what will bring Messiah, the one like David, and rescue them from their plight. And so they are bringing strict laws of holiness, of washing and cleaning, of being separate from the Gentiles. With all of this underlying underlying view of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, Mark then portrays Jesus as intentionally crossing ethnic, religious, and social barriers for the sake of extending the blessings of God to the Gentiles. This is radical. And in these two stories, Mark shows that Gentiles are to share the bread of fellowship in God's kingdom and that Jesus has come to open up the way, especially to the Gentiles. First, Notice how Mark highlights Jesus's geographical move directly following his confrontation with the religious leaders. They were talking about clean and unclean, washed hands and unwashed hands, what defiles, what what really causes sin in someone's life. And it says, then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. And this is outside of the land of Israel and thoroughly Gentile territory. It's fascinating. This is one of the only times in scripture we have Jesus leaving, especially in his ministry period, leaving the land of Israel and being in Gentile territory. Now watch what happens in the story. It's fascinating. It says he didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Now that's fascinating to me because Mark has been playing off this motif of hidden and revealed what is secret and what is made known. Jesus could not be kept secret, but he's going to be made known. He's going to be manifest to this Gentile woman. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. 
Since she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, first I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. But she replies, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs on the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed and the demon was gone. So what, what's going on here? Jesus is trying to hide out with his disciples, but he cannot be hidden, as I mentioned. And a woman who is a Gentile, a Syrophoenician in particular, seeks Jesus out and asks that he will heal her demon-oppressed daughter. And Jesus, in typical fashion for Mark, he answers her with a parabolic statement. And we've noticed in past, or we've noted, excuse me, in past teachings that whenever Jesus teaches in parables, people don't get it. Right? Not the religious leaders, not the biblical scholars, not the crowd, not even the disciples. Even the disciples have to follow up Jesus' teaching with a private lesson. But notice, this Gentile woman immediately gets what Jesus is saying and actually answers him back with her own parable. This is amazing. She is the only one in the Gospel of Mark that gets Jesus' parable like that without explanation. What is Mark getting at here? Well, many, first of all, have been taken aback by Jesus' response to this helpless woman and her child. He pushes her off, refuses to help, calls her daughter a little dog, which is like, whoa, 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 Jesus, like, what are you doing here? Let me just make a note about this. Jesus is playing off of this term, I believe. The Jews considered the Gentiles dogs, unfit and unclean. We just read about what they believed uh, should happen to those who would intermarry with the Gentiles. They would contaminate the nation. They would contaminate a whole family. They were dogs, outsiders, unfit for the promises of God. And here, I think Jesus is playing off of this with his own phrase on purpose. Jesus uses the less offensive term for a pet or puppy but he obviously does it on purpose. He's actually wanting to kind of force the issue that the Gentiles are considered this, and we'll see why in just a second. So what's the deal? As we've noted in the past, Jesus is looking for faith, and parables are a test to all who hear them, asking will they respond in faith or will they dismiss them and write them off? And this woman, this Gentile woman, displays incredible faith and insight, which as I mentioned, is unparalleled in Mark's gospel. Not only does she understand the parable, something disciples are unable to do, but she extends the parable to include the Gentiles in the blessings of God at present. In Jesus' response, he actually doesn't say that he won't help her, but he does hint that he won't help her now. Notice he says, the children, the family must be fed first, and that it's not right to take the bread and throw it to the little dogs. I think what Jesus is really saying is, I'm here for Israel first, the children and heirs of Abraham, the family, but there will be a time for another feeding. But the woman responds, and I'm going to paraphrase this here. She says, I'm not asking for an exclusive meal, but if the dogs eat the crumbs under the table, they are fed at the same time as the children. Yes, let the children be fed, but don't keep us from the crumbs. It's just this 
awesome way that this woman tussles with Jesus and just like goes like tit for tat for his parabolic statement. And Jesus, I think, is just shocked. He's like blown away by this woman that she's just like will not be deterred in her faith of seeking healing and help from Jesus. Jesus responds for this statement, go your way, the demon has left your daughter. Kelly Iverson in her book, Reading Mark in Context, says this, while Jubilees exemplifies a proverbial fear of the outsider, which was common refrain in both ancient and contemporary rhetoric. Mark plays off this perspective and points the audience, disciples of Jesus, to a new way of thinking. Instead of promoting stereotypes, Mark's Jesus subverts expectations by repeatedly crossing religious and cultural boundaries, demonstrating that purity is a matter of the heart, not ethnicity, food, or unwashed hands. Although Israel does hold a special place in salvation history, the kingdom of God is not identified with a particular people, ethnicity, tribe, or language. Mark's Jesus extends blessing of the kingdom to those outside the Jewish community and simultaneously paves the way for the expansion of the church to Gentile dogs. That is so good. I love that Jesus challenges his audience disciples with a new way of thinking instead of promoting stereotypes. Repeatedly, he crosses religious and cultural boundaries. Church, this is what we've been talking about. If we're following in the way of Jesus, we cannot give in to the stereotypes. You know, I've been thinking about this with all of this banter about politics going on. You know, either side of the main parties, what they want to do is they want to get us on their side. But what they will do is they will demonize the other. The gospel will not allow us to do that. It will actually not allow us to see our neighbor, to see someone else as other as vile as unclean remember paul says this he says since we know jesus we we understand the world in just this whole new context if anyone is in christ they are a new creation we should see the whole world as potential for salvation as those who can be and are intended to be recipients of the grace of god The gospel will not allow us to make enemies out of humans, but only the enemy is the enemy. Only the power behind the power is the enemy. But humans are those who are often trapped under the influence of the evil one, and they need to be rescued. We've looked at this again and again. And so Jesus challenges us in this way. Let's go on and look at the next story as well. I love what comes next. Mark presents us next with a man who the crowds from the Decapolis, or maybe it's from Tyre, it's kind of confusing in the text where this is happening, but the crowds have brought this man to Jesus to be healed. And we're told that he's deaf and that he has a speech impediment. And so Jesus takes the man aside privately and he begins to do all of these strange things to the man. And then finally he looks up to heaven and says, be opened. And the man is healed. And then the people respond just saying, we've never seen anything like this. This man does everything well. They're worshiping God. They're, they're, they're in awe and astonishment of Jesus. So this is a strange passage. What in the world is going on here? And why does Mark give us the strangest Hebrew word, ephaphatha? What's going on? Well, Mark uses a different word, 
in this passage to describe this man's speech defect. And it's an extremely rare word. It's the Greek word mogalalos. I don't know if I'm saying that right. And it can only be found in the Septuagint in Isaiah 35, verse 6. And we often refer to these as hyperlinks. We've been using that term a lot as we've been looking through Mark. This passage that it hyperlinks to, Isaiah, is about God's promise to deliver and restore his people from exile. And it pictures the Lord, Yahweh, leading his people out of exile through the wilderness. Listen to it. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it and it shall belong to those who walk on the way even and when they are fools they shall not go astray no lion shall be there nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it they shall not be found there but the redeemed shall walk there and the ransomed of the lord shall return and come to zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away what an incredible vision of god's redemption of his restoration i i love isaiah 35. i want you to consider for a moment what mark is hinting at here and what proverbial shoe he is dropping We've already seen how the passage about the feeding of the 5,000 was Mark's hyperlink to the prophetic passages about God making the wilderness a garden-like place. But notice here in that same section from Isaiah, the blind, the lame, and the stammering tongue. Remember, it's that one word that's only used twice in the Greek Bible. Isaiah 35, Mark 7. All these are made whole and brought into God's redemption and set on the way of the Lord, the highway of holiness. It cannot be missed that what Mark is doing here is showing how Isaiah 35's vision of Yahweh's rescue of his people is being fulfilled by Jesus, but in a way that no one expected. Because this isn't about the Jews being redeemed alone. It's not about the Jews being rescued. It's about unclean Gentiles as well. It's about them being made holy. In this story that we have, it's the Gentile stammering tongue who is made loose and brought into the way of the Lord. This can't be missed. It's about the unclean Gentiles. It's about them being made holy. It's about the whole of humanity, regardless of ethnicity, being included in God's redemption and being given an identity with the people of God. It's beautiful how in this passage, Mark shows Jesus looking up to heaven and then saying, be opened, isn't it? What is Jesus opening? It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Why does Jesus look up to heaven if he's going to open this man's mouth if he's going to open his ears 
Mark has already shown us in chapter 1 that in Jesus, God has torn open the heavens and come down. Mark 1.10. That in Jesus, he has removed the veil that separates heaven and earth. And this is exactly what Jesus is here to do. He is here to open up the kingdom of heaven. He's here to open up the way, the path back to God through redemption that is through him. Remember, we're told in the book, I believe it's in Hebrews, that the veil that separated us from God was Jesus' flesh that was torn open for us. And now the way has been made clear into the holiest of all. Jesus has opened the way back to the Father. And he's here to open eyes. He's here to open ears. He's here to open hearts. Now, Pope Benedict XVI commented on these verses. Let me just say one thing. I am quoting a Catholic, Roman Catholic Pope. That does not mean that I endorse the Roman Catholic Church. I quote Neil Young. I quote Bob Dylan. It doesn't mean that I endorse their lifestyle. But this man is a biblical scholar and he has some incredible insight on this passage. Listen. He says, there is an inner closing which covers the deepest core of the person. This is what the Bible calls the heart. And that is what Jesus came to open, to liberate, to enable us to fully live our relationship with God and with others. This little word, ephaphatha, be opened, sums up Christ's entire mission he became man so that man, made inwardly deaf and dumb by sin, would become able to hear the voice of God, the voice of love speaking to his heart, and learn to speak himself in the language of love, to communicate with God and with others. That is incredible. He became, let me read it again. He became man so that man made inwardly deaf and dumb by sin, would become able to hear the voice of God, the voice of love speaking to his heart, and learn to speak in the language of love, to communicate with God and with others. He says, reflecting on this story, we are compelled to ask ourselves, what is blocking our spiritual ears to hearing the word of God? What is blocking our spiritual ears to hearing the word of God? If Jesus has come to remove uh, the sin that, that made us deaf and dumb so that we might hear God's voice of love, is that voice of love extending to others? And if it isn't, what has happened? What has clogged up the love of God within us? Have we forgotten the love of God? Have other desires taken its place? Have other hopes and other loves taken its place? Are they competing? I would say they are competing. Have they won? What is blocking our spiritual ears to hearing the word of God? He says, what has stiffened our tongues so that we hesitate to respond fully in faith and love? Let us pray that Jesus opens our ears and mouths to the message of the gospel. Let us pray that Jesus opens heaven anew to us. Let us pray for all this, knowing that Jesus has already opened up the heavens for us and even now is interceding for us in heaven. Church, in closing... I wonder in what ways do I need to be opened? As I was preparing this, 
this week, I've been asking the Lord, Lord, open my eyes to the ways that I am blinded to my inconsistencies with the gospel. Open my eyes to the ways that I can preach the gospel and then fail to love my wife or my children, speak kindly to them, graciously to them. Open my eyes and my ears to the ways that I can preach a gospel of forgiveness, but I can withhold forgiveness from someone who has wronged me again and again. Open my eyes, open my ears, and I would ask you, in what way do you need to be opened? Reopen to the hope that is found only in Jesus. Open to forgiveness because bitterness has grown in your heart. Open to faith because you become paralyzed by fear. Jesus says to us, be opened. This is his word to us. He is the one who shuts and no one opens, who opens and no one shuts. He has the power. Will we open up our minds to receive? Will we open up our hearts to receive this word from the Lord? Will we allow it to search us, to know us, as David said, to purge us and lead us in the way that is everlasting? May the Holy Spirit renew our hearts through the love, the hope, and grace that are be found in Christ alone. I also want to reiterate some of what I said last week. Because if Jesus has come to open up the way of salvation, to open up the kingdom of God, the question then is, are Jesus' disciples helping or hindering that work? Are we standing in the way of Jesus? Are we, like the religious leaders, clogging up the way, keeping people from seeing Jesus through our own political affiliations that we have attached to our faith? And finally, the question is, will we allow Jesus to open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to be healed from this and then to be channels of his grace, to be those who would bring people into the way of the Lord, the way of salvation. Church, we are at an apocalyptic moment. I mentioned this last week. We're in a moment where everything around us is being shaken and is revealing, which is what the word apocalypse means. It's revealing what's really in the heart. There is something going on. There's power behind the power, but there is a greater power. He is seated on the throne in the heavens. And the test is, will we give our allegiance to the one that is seated on the throne? Will we place our hope, our trust, our faith in him? Will we do what he has called us to do? Will we partner with him in salvation in the work of the kingdom of God? Or will we clog the way? I pray that I will be open. I pray, church, that you will be open, that we will be open to the ways in which the Lord is at work and that we will let go of the ways that he is not at work, the things that he is not doing, but that we will be open, so open to the way and the work of the Lord so that we might see an incredible harvest in this time. Lord, we pray that you would do that. And as I prayed last week, I pray again, Holy Spirit, do for us what we cannot do. Lord, we are no different than Israel. Lord, our hearts grow hard. They grow callous through sin, 
through selfishness, through our own attempts at justice, our own attempts at righteousness, apart from you. Heal us, Lord. Restore us, Lord. Remind us of the ways that you have redeemed, that you have forgiven us, that you have brought us from darkness to light, that you have brought us from brokenness to healing, that you have placed us on the way of salvation. And even when we've been fools, like Isaiah 35 says, you've not abandoned us. We have not been kicked off the path, but you've been faithful to correct us, to bring us back. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do it again. And we do ask, Lord, that as we return to you, Lord, that there would be a harvest. Open our eyes, as Jesus said to the disciples, the fields are white for the harvest. Prepare our hearts, Lord, for that work. Amen.